This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to Let's Talk About. Soon after the February 2020 riots in Delhi, The Economic Times, the Deccan Chronicle and the New Indian Express carried reports of a curious mobile app that rioters were using for targeted arson. The rioters would see a vehicle on the street, look up the name of the owner on this app, and if the owner belonged to the targeted religion, the rioters would burn the car or truck or bike. This was arson without collateral damage. Several such apps continue to exist. Most of them are in regional languages but the one I confirm still exists as on May 19th is in English and is called the Vahan Master RTO. You can open the app and enter the license plate of any vehicle in the search box and you will see the name of the owner. You can also see the year the car was registered, the place the vehicle was registered, the vehicle's fuel type, whether the vehicle is insured, when the insurance expires and when the registration validity ends. If I chose to I could access this info about any vehicle I see parked next to me at a mall or ahead of me in a traffic jam if I was a vigilante out on a hunt I could easily find details on any young couple out on a date in their car this app is so popular that there are youtube videos explaining how to use the app this app also has a most viewed section where you can see cars registered in the names of Amir Khan Salman Khan and of course Shahrukh Khan At this point it's important to remind ourselves that in India a name can give away your caste as well as your religion. Now here's the thing. We don't know how this data was leaked. In response to a story in the Economic Times, officials said they hadn't heard anything about the data getting out. Then the officials said something spectacular and I quote, "We want to conceal with asterisk few alphabets of the vehicle owner's name so their identity is somewhat protected unquote the government is going to somewhat conceal our data the way we somewhat conceal swear words but here's what we do know in july of 2019 nitin gadkari informed the rajya sabha that the ministry of road transport and highways was selling driving license and vehicular license data for 3 crore rupees annually An RTI filed by Media Nama revealed that 87 private entities including Bajaj Finance, Citibank, HDFC, ICICI, Kotak, BMW, Nissan, Toyota, Ola and 32 government entities had already bought the data. But how did the Vahan Master RTO get hold of this data? Why is it so easy to access? Is any of this legal? And who can do what with this kind of data? These are big questions. and it will take time to cover all that ground so let's start with the simplest idea underlying this it is this when quantity of something changes rapidly the quality begins to change too i'll say this again when things change a lot in scale at some point those things begin to change in essence also this is how peter norvig director of research at google explained it for thousands of years humans could paint and draw and only recently through the photograph did we begin to capture reality rather than represent it and yet the visual experience was fundamentally the same 
One was looking at flat, unmoving images. But if you take those same images and sped them up to 24 frames a second, just fast enough that the mind sees them as a continuum, what you make is something essentially different. A movie. A quantitative change in speed led to a qualitative change in essence. Empirically too, we see this a lot. A long-distance relationship between Bangalore and Bombay is fundamentally different from a long-distance relationship between Bombay and New York for a bunch of reasons. Differences in time zones, cost of meeting frequently, differences in cultures. Whether you're a connoisseur or an addict of a substance comes down to how much and how often you consume it and how that affects your life. Big changes in quantities cause big changes in essence. This brings us back to data. As data became big, this also brought rapid and dramatic changes in the essence of data. And relationships that were traditionally built on the movement of data between a state and its people, a retailer and its customers, insurers and insured, fundamentally and permanently also changed. Data is the new oil. The world changed shape when data got big. Data is also dangerous, and data could be explosive. This show is about how it changed. In cricket, we can go ball by ball. So we can, in essence, reproduce the entire match on the back-end system. What we know... Mark my words, AI is far more dangerous than nukes. And also what we don't. Privacy is dead. You get to edit out what you are presenting depending on who's watching. My name is Sneha Vakharia and let's talk about big data. So those who remember, 1992 was not that long ago. It was the year the Cold War formally ended. The Cold War days are over. Babri Masjid was demolished. And a young Amir Khan rolled down a cliff as an expression of love in Pehla Nasha. I was two years old and the producer of this show, Aditya Varyar, did not yet exist. Far away in another part of the world, Walmart achieved a mammoth feat in computing. They spent millions to build a database that could hold one TB of data. Imagine that. Millions to build what today costs 3,000 rupees and can be held in the palm of your hand. Across the Atlantic, businesses in the UK were threatened. Tesco, a UK supermarket chain, hired a mathematician called Clive Humby, who had a plan to fend off the Americans. He was going to collect customer data. But the bigger question was how? Remember, this was 1992. Altogether on the internet, there were 26 websites. No Facebook, no Google. From where were they going to collect the data? Here, someone at Tesco had an idea. Tesco would give its customers a loyalty card with ATM technology and record the customer's name and address. The customer would swipe the card at checkout every time they made a purchase. Sales would be recorded. Four times a year, the customer would receive vouchers and discount coupons designed specifically for them in the mail. Through targeted ads delivered to the customer's home, Tesco would work to increase sales. If sales increased sufficiently to cover the cost of the program, then this was the real kicker. Tesco would walk away with customer data for free. 
Tesco ran a small pilot in a handful of stores over the summer. Three months later, they presented their results to the board. Here's what the Tesco chairman said to Clive Humby after the presentation. Uh, you know more about my business in three months than I do in 30 years. In 1994, Tesco expanded the loyalty program to 11 more stores. In 1995, it went nationwide. In the first three months of its nationwide launch, Tesco added 5 million members to its loyalty program, who shopped 50 million times and bought 2 billion items. This was a lot of data. So they cut it. Rather than store how much was spent by a customer on each item, they stored how much was spent in each department. Then they shrunk their data further. Instead of recording sales in pounds and cents, the data systems would grade the value of sales on a scale of 0 to 99. The loss in precision was not significant, but it cut costs by 75%. And they never analyze all the data at once. Just analyzing 10% once a week was sufficient for achieving 90% certainty in predictions. I come from a highly analytical background and when you're processing very large volumes of data, it is expensive. Um, even in today's world on Hadoop and cloud storage, um, you know, billions of rows of data still cost quite some money to process. And I think part of the question is how accurate do you need to be? I mean, Clubcard, typically we wrote to 12 million people per cycle, sent them offers. I could, in theory, personalize every single offer to every single person. But actually, by forming small pots of people who are broadly similar, I can basically save immense amounts of compute power and still get 90, 95% of the benefit. And so it's about being sensible. Here, Humby's team embraced a nifty quirk of statistics. Larger and larger sets of data give smaller and smaller increases in certainty of predictions. The usefulness of each data point decreases as the amount of data increases. So you don't need your data to be completely accurate. Being somewhat accurate is good enough. This is something that makes big data fundamentally different from data as we have known it through human history. For millennia, we've recorded our lives in rows and columns, and the volume of information has been small. That's why it was important that every data entry be accurate. But with big data, the volume is so large that each entry does not need to be precise. A very rough approximation does the job almost as well and at much lower costs. Humbi could also begin to describe individual shoppers based on what they bought. This is how that played out at Tesco. Humbi would look at when customers came into a store, what they bought, and tell a lot of things about those people. Humbi could guess whether someone was working class because they came in only during peak hours. He could guess how large a family was and what ages its members were based on what they bought. He could also guess what a customer was not buying and was buying somewhere else. Really, if you think about it, if you know what the holes in the basket are, uh, particularly for grocery, because, because all of us as, uh, buying food have a certain mix of carbohydrate, protein, um, sugars, etc. So we, we, we understood roughly what you would probably buy. 
from some of the peak purchases we could guess we never asked people if they had children we could guess whether they had children because of the things they put in their basket and and so you what we really built was a sort of a how many calories are we selling you type model and therefore we're not meeting your full needs so where are we missing out and that and that is easy money because those customers are already in your store if you can find the thing if you can put the thing on the shelf that they want that comes straight into your basket it's got very low acquisition cost it's got very low service cost because you're already going to scan a basket anyway so the idea of filling holes in the basket was the biggest single prize that was available to the retailer this brings us to the last idea targeting tesco did a very clever kind of clustering over 3 months tesco created a list of 20 attributes to describe any product 45000 products were given scores on each of those 20 attributes or dimensions so now each product was described in 20 different ways think of this as 20 rows of a checkbox products that ticked off similar checkboxes were clustered together tesco mapped which customers bought which cluster of products For example, customers who bought the cheapest products in every category, true budget shoppers for one cluster. Those who had expensive tastes for another cluster. Those who liked to cook or purchased only organic food or bought the top range of prepared food were all distinct but overlapping clusters. With this information, Tesco would look at other products in those clusters and nudge customers towards them. Tesco could lead rather than respond to customer tastes. Here's another thing. For the first time, they could immediately see that the top spending 100 customers were as valuable to them as the bottom 4000. They call them the premium loyals and spend the largest fraction of their budget on discounting these customers. They could immediately see the customers who could be tempted towards a product with a small price reduction. Customers who could not be tempted at all and those who needed a large discount to be tipped towards a purchase. They experimented and tested for price sensitivity. They learned that a two percent discount was as effective as a one percent discount. So they began discounting only as much as they needed. In other words, Tesco knew which customers they wanted to discount. They could predict what those customers were likely to buy, and they knew how much discount could tip a customer towards a specific purchase. They could target promotions with efficiencies unheard of before. They could change customer behavior. By 1996, the Tesco loyalty card was able to increase Tesco sales by a billion pounds or 4% in directly attributable sales just by sending targeted promotions four times a year in the mail. In other words, within the first year of its existence, the Tesco card began paying for itself. That same year Tesco became UK's market leader in supermarket retail. 10 years later in 2006 Clive Humby first spoke a phrase that you've heard a lot by now. Data is the new oil. What does it mean? We we'll let Clive explain it himself. People were talking about the next business revolution. And a lot of people were talking about the internet. And I think what I really recognized was that actually the internet is not new we've always had direct selling business i mean you know if you go back into the wild west in america 
if you were living in the, some farm in Wyoming in 1870, you could still buy a China tea set, but instead of going onto a website, you looked in the Sears catalog. So all the internet has done is bring shopping, it's taken printed uh, catalogs and made them electronic catalogs. But the big difference is it was generating data. And my logic was that data was basically the potential fuel for an industrial revolution. So if you think about healthcare, you think about industry, the data that we're now able to process and, and source is potentially massive and wide ranging. So here in the UK, for example, government is releasing a lot of government statistics digitally now. And being able to process those assets really revolutionizes the way people might run their businesses. But at the same time, data on its own is not very useful. It's like crude oil. Crude oil has been around for a long time and, and short of tar pits uh, capturing dinosaurs, it's really not been used for very much until someone came up with the bright idea of converting it into something useful. And so my analogy of data being oil was that actually raw data is like crude oil. It is not very useful. It's only when you change it into a useful byproduct that you get something valuable out of it. But also, a bit like those byproducts, data is also dangerous. Uh, those byproducts are explosive, um, and data could be explosive. It could give you real problems if you process it badly. So my analogy of data being like oil was all about the fact that you had to refine it and make it useful and convert it into new products to really drive the business forward. And I think a lot of businesses make the mistake of thinking, I've built my data lake, you know, I've, I've absorbed all the data in my business, I've done my job. Well, all you've done is put the well in. You've now got to refine the data and make it useful. And I think a lot of people do not realize that making it useful isn't just processing it, it's actually knowing what you're making out of it. Uh, are you making a plastic? Are you making petrol? Are you making polythene bags? All come out of oil, but are used for very different purposes. And, and the analogy I think holds true um, in the big data industry. Think about what this means for you in your life. Whenever you go to a store and give your phone number at checkout or order online, the retailer is tracking what day of the week and time you made the purchase and what cluster of items you bought. They use this information to incentivize behavior they seek. And now there's so much more data about you out there. Corporations are literally drowning in lakes of it. While old school loyalty programs like the Club Marriott and the Fab India loyalty continue to exist, newer models of loyalty programs have come into play. These are more sophisticated and get their data from all kinds of places. You've heard of them. Payment gateways like Paytm, Google Pay, Amazon Pay, Phone Pay. And remember, Tesco only collected data from what you did at Tesco stores in 1992 when barely any of us were on the internet. Wallets today are collecting data on purchases both offline and online, at street food carts, at high-end retail, on your phone and television and gaming bills, across different platforms and sellers. Once they know your spending patterns, they can advertise financial products that they think you may need, like credit cards, loans, insurance schemes. These are loyalty cards on steroids. And we don't even know we're being targeted. 
The data they collect is more diverse and comprehensive than Tesco could have ever dreamed. And the targeting, discounting and cashbacks are more effective and efficient than ever possible before. And the changes in our behavior, so incremental, so discreet, we don't even notice. This brings us back to where we began, to the Vahan Master data. We still don't know how the data was leaked or where these apps get their data from. We'll come back to this in episode 3. For now though, let's stick to legitimate use of data, as the government intended. The government sold vehicular data to a bunch of companies for a sum of money. What could these companies really do with it? Remember again the idea we were going to come back to? That with big data, you can pretty accurately predict something even from approximate data? So what could a nation's vehicular data tell us about its people? This is a conversation with Shankar Venkatagiri, a professor of mathematics and computer science at IIM Bangalore, who is in the process of designing an MBA course in data analytics. We talk about what one could learn from data on types of cars that people buy across the country. He suggests that you could use cars as an imprecise proxy for wealth, and you could map wealth across the country pretty well. So Shankar, if you were an auto manufacturer, and you are making cars, and you knew that this part of Bangalore prefers this type of car, or this part of Nagpur prefers this type of two-wheeler, what would you be able to do with that information? If I know the makeup of a city, then I know what is the feasibility of having a dealership in such a place. There are surprises even in spite of all this. For example, there is a very famous case of 125 Mercedes Benzes being bought in Aurangabad all at once. Was a politician involved? Nope, nothing. They, I think they just decided to put a dealership in there. I'm not too sure of that. You'll have to check the uh, antecedents of this. But you wouldn't expect that Aurangabad's residents would have that kind of money. And they did. It's just that their ways of living are modest. The way I look at it is, the equivalent is in Chettinad, in uh, Tamil Nadu. These guys are extremely modest in their appearance, but they drive around Mercedes's like left, right and center. If you look at Tirupur, they are famously known for their uh, understated uh, demeanor, but they'll be going around in a Mercedes, right? It's not just a status symbol as much as, hey, you know what, uh, I can afford it and uh, I might as well flaunt, flaunt it. I mean, look at Dharavi. I'm told that Dharavi has a lot of, uh, you know, mega vehicles, big vehicles, rich vehicles. So people cannot simply look at the fact that, oh, Dharavi, it's such an unclean place, etc., etc. Any retailer will look at the fact that there are extremely rich people and will stock high value items in the store. So it helps with how dealerships manage their stocking? Yes. Uh, also, not just uh, dealerships, as much as if I figure out make and models of cars, right? Then I get a you know fairly good idea of what the preference of a certain area is. For example, if it is mostly Maruti, now Maruti has that value for money uh, concept associated with it. So they may not want to purchase things that have too many bells and whistles. So if I have to make a choice as to where to locate the dealership for a car which is more uh, quirky and uh, 
you know uh, people are willing to pay the extra premium etc etc to have more individualism in the cars and what have you if i'm looking at the makeup of people in a certain area then surely i have you know things that i can infer from bulk ownerships of vehicles in a certain area now if in a certain area all that i am noticing are that these are people owning two wheelers would i place a mercedes benz dealership there no right that's the easy answer the difficult answer is going to be when there is a healthy mix of all kinds of transportation then in which case in which of these 178 or 235 wards will i want to place a dealership for which kind of vehicles of my fleet right so those are the kinds of questions i can answer provided i have bulk ownership gather enough vehicular data you can build economic profiles of places you can map wealth spread across a country you can map the spread of demand and appetite for different clusters of goods even an approximate of data can give you accuracies unheard of before remember also the other idea that if you have a large enough data set you can infer x from y humbi could guess what strata of job a customer had based on what time they came to the store he could guess based on the contents of your basket what stage of life you are in whether you live alone or with a family or are retired with a partner with data x you can infer y now imagine having the names and addresses of all registered drivers in the country if done well one could more or less map caste across our country just by recognizing patterns in the data could this be put to use electorally Sure. Could this be used for efficient targeting? Yes. And remember that 32 government entities have purchased this data and we have no idea what they plan to do with it. We don't know which government entities these are. Big data is fundamentally different from data as we have known it through human history because big data doesn't need to be precise to give really accurate predictions. Big data allows you to target with efficiencies impossible before. and you can infer all kinds of things with it by just building clusters and finding patterns and that's what we are going to discuss in our next episode pattern recognition a football team in scotland decided to get ahead of the pandemic by replacing a cameraman with a ball tracking camera that uses ai except in one particular match The artificial intelligence systems mistook the head of a bald linesman for a ball and tracked him over the course of the match rather his bald head. Episode 2 is about artificial intelligence. The ways in which it is like human intelligence and the ways in which it is different. To understand how machines think, we also need to understand a little bit about how we think, how we learn. More on this in episode 2. I'm your host and writer Sneha Vakharia. This episode of Let's Talk About Big Data has been produced by Aditya Varyar, edited by Satish Kumar, and transcripts are by Kamya Pandey. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. 
a lot of effort has gone into it and it has only been made possible by our subscribers stay tuned for the next episode which will be ahead of the paywall but after that everything goes behind the paywall please subscribe to news laundry it is the only way to keep independent media alive pay to keep news free all the news laundry podcasts are available on stitcher itunes and any other podcast platform please subscribe to news laundry help us keep news independent to catch all our podcasts on news pop culture current affairs and sport visit newslaundry.com follow us on facebook twitter and instagram and subscribe to our youtube channel